You are listening to the audiobook of Reset. Choose your story by Luke Mathers and Ali Shorter. Introduction. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Year 12? I bet many of you initially think fun. This is because you might be thinking we are going to rule the school, as they said in the 1970s movies, Greece. You may be thinking about the school formal, the celebrations, and possibly even schoolies week. Ruling the school comes with a lot of responsibilities, like being a role model to the younger students, doing extra well in your exams, fitting in your extracurriculars for university and job applications, and get involved in social activities inside and outside of the school, all the way up to the stuff that's going to be fun in your personal life. Yeah, senior year can be fun, but I bet for the majority of you, the first word that comes to mind is stressful. It's okay. It's supposed to be stressful. It always has been. The purpose of school is to prepare you for life, and life is stressful. You may never use calculus again. The nature of quantum physics may remain a mystery forever. If school can teach you how to get better at stress, it will be a life lesson worth learning. This book will give you alternative ways to deal with life's challenges and to help you achieve your goals. You can learn about the concept of catch, wait and reset and we'll give you some options on for dealing with stress. We will look at the stories we tell ourselves and learn how to change our thought habits to be more helpful. There is always more than one truth depending on the angle that you're looking at the situation. This book is about finding a truth that helps. Some tips you'll use, others will be discarded and that's okay. What Reset will do is get you thinking about your thinking. This little parable will help you identify and change the thought habits that aren't helping. If it does that, we've done our job. Life has never been better than it is right now. Technology, connection and the availability of information means that everyone has access to mountains of knowledge. The world is safer than ever. There are fewer wars and crime rates are lower than at any time in history. We live longer and medical advances are improving exponentially. Why then are rates of anxiety, substance abuse and depression skyrocketing, getting worse and starting younger? Why are mental health problems on the rise and what can we do about them? There's an African proverb made famous by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. There comes a point where we need to just stop pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out where they're falling in. This book is about going upstream. As teenagers, our brains are still developing. The smart part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, if you want to nerd out, doesn't fully develop until we're in our mid-20s. By going upstream, we can change our thinking so that the brain rewires to make better thinking our default way of thinking. We form habits and neural pathways by repeating thoughts and actions. It's like building a road. The more we think and do something, the wider and faster that road becomes. Eventually, our thought habits become like a motorway and our default way of getting somewhere. They become our identity. Neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to change. Teenage brains are really malleable and flexible and they can rewire themselves depending on your priorities. We create new pathways, delete unused ones and strengthen the pathways that are being used a lot. If we put a lot of energy into language, maths and physics, 
we'll get a brain that's better at those things. If we spend a lot of time stressing, worrying, and in a constant state of anxiety, we will set up neural pathways that lean towards that way of thinking. This book is about doing a reset that optimizes our thought habits. If we can develop habits of thinking in our teenage years that are helpful, we can eliminate a whole bunch of thinking that only causes pain and grief. By being deliberate with the stories we tell ourselves now, we can catch unhelpful thought habits and change them. As a conference speaker and business coach, I see smart, talented people every day who have an unhealthy relationship with stress. They are either marinating in stress hormones or and on the cusp of burning out, or they are tapping out and settling for boring, unfulfilled lives just to avoid stress. Imagine if we could teach people a way to make stress a positive thing, to make it non-stick. In our first book, Stress Teflon, we looked at how stress works and how to get better at it. In Reset, we are going upstream. This book is a parable, a short story that will teach us some lessons that are based on real life. The two characters, Zach and Amy, will, will tell their stories in their own words. They are composites of real people who experience stress, love, loss, joy and fear, just like all teenagers. Amy and Zach's journey to reset is a common one. The aim of the book, as with all parables, is to tell a story that can teach you a lesson or two. The aim of it is to help you learn from Amy and Zach and be deliberate about the story you're telling yourself. We are all making up stories about ourselves and our place in the world. If you're going to make up stories, make up stories that help. Term one, Amy. Nothing. The first day of year 12 was supposed to be different. The air was supposed to be buzzing with excitement and anticipation. Social hierarchies were supposed to crumble as the seniors exchanged smiles, knowing they were running this final race together. I was supposed to feel good, confident and ready. But most importantly, I was supposed to be riding in with my best friend Kara by my side. But nothing turns out how it is supposed to. And today is no exception. The air is flat, the social hierarchies remain, and I hardly feel a thing. No excitement, no anticipation, no confidence, nothing. At least I'm out of the house. Mum has been great, but she's driving me crazy. I know she cares and loves me a lot, but the constant are you okays and attempts to humour me are wearing a bit thin. I just want to be left alone. In her helicopter parenting way, she's trying to help, but cutting the crusts off my sandwiches and organising friends to pop over won't bring Kara back. It's like she's trying to arrange playdates to cheer me up. I'm 17, not 7. Despite all her efforts, I'm still riding into school alone. No Kara, just me, my bike, and my mud-spattered uniform. Sometimes I wonder why I'm not as lucky as other people, especially dicks like Zach, who have done nothing to deserve it. Just look at him, driving into school in his fancy car, an entourage of flunkies around him as he strolls arrogantly through the front gates. He's confident, athletic and popular, not a care in the world. He knows this is going to be a good year for him. Meanwhile, I stand at the bike racks alone, not at all ready for year 12. As I walk in, I'm not greeted by a mass of friends like Zach. Instead, people shoot me glances of judgment and pity. 
Little head tilts and no-lip smiles that drip with a cross between pity and I'm glad I'm not her. They want to gossip about how pathetic I am, but their lips stay sealed as they remember that I have lost someone close to me. Before Kara died, the whole school just ignored me, like I wasn't even there. Except for a few friends, and Kara, of course. But now, they know who I am and they acknowledge my presence, but they avoid me, as if they can catch my grief and depression. Even my other friends have been avoiding me since it happened, but these days I prefer to be alone anyway. I spot my small group of friends standing near the lockers, Mia, Harper, and Bella. I'm not really in the mood to chat, but if I walk past them without stopping to say hello, things will get even more awkward than they already are. Hey, I say hesitantly as I approach them. Amy, Mia says with a hint of surprise in her voice, like she can't believe she's seeing me in the flesh. Long time no see, she continues, giving me an awkward hug. Yeah, where were you all holidays? Harper says accusingly, although attempting to sound nice. Oh, I I was busy, I say, avoiding eye contact. They all nod as though they understand, but I can tell they know it is a lie. That's a shame. You missed out on a lot, Bella says. Yeah, you should have seen Mia at Jake's party, Harper laughs. Oh, shut up, Mia chuckles. We do not need to relive that. They go on talking and laughing about all the adventures they went on during the holidays. I don't think I can take it anymore. I can't help but feel left out, but I also know that it wouldn't have been the same without Kara there. My stomach starts doing cartwheels and I get the familiar knot under my ribs. I should go put my stuff in my locker, I interject with slightly more urgency than required. Okay, see you at lunch, Mia calls as I walk away. When I get to my locker, I'm out of breath. Maybe it's because I walked fast, trying to avoid any more interactions. I feel a tear tumble down my cheek. My heart's racing. I need to go. Not this again. I can't cry in front of my classmates. That would make me more pathetic, if that's even possible. I run to the nearest bathroom and lock myself in the stall. My chest feels tight and a lump grows in my throat. My entire body starts trembling. Hot and cold flushes gush through my veins. My breathing is quick and erratic. It's awful, but I know it never lasts long. Eventually, my body calms down and I sit in the safety of the cubicle for a few minutes to get myself sorted out. I hadn't had a panic attack for a while and I'm not sure why I had one today. Maybe it's because I'm finally realising that I won't be going through year 12 with my best friend, who was there for me for the past 11 years of school. She's gone. She'll never graduate. We'll never be able to do all that we had planned for this final year. Like have that movie marathon after final exams, or shop for formal dresses, or scratch our initials into the bathroom wall on the last day. The things we've been planning for the past 11 years have been taken away, as easily as dust by the wind. If I can't even make it through the first morning, how can I make it through the rest of the day? Or better yet, the rest of the year? I'm glad I got this out of my system before assembly. Apparently some guest speaker is talking to us today. Hopefully it gets better than this morning, but I doubt it. Chapter 3. Zach. Alone in a crowd. Bye, Mum, I say, trying to catch her attention between her phone call. But she doesn't acknowledge me at all. I wave my hand in front of her face as if trying to lift her out of a trance. She finally looks up at me, but she frowns and points at the phone she clasps to her ear. Just saying goodbye. I'm off to school, I whisper. She smiles weakly and then shoos me away impatiently. 
I can't believe I even thought she'd care that it was my first day of year 12. I'm sure she didn't even know I had school today at all. As I'm driving into the parking lot, I find myself not wanting to get out of the car. It's not like there is anything wrong with school. In fact, it's my kingdom. I'm captain of the swimming team, and I'm passing all my classes with flying colours. So you might ask, what's the problem then? Well, it just feels like I can't be bothered anymore. I'm not motivated to do my best in the pool or in the classroom. I'm not excited to hang out with all my friends. It just doesn't seem like enough anymore. I'm bored of it. I need something else to excite me. As I walk to the front gates, strangers surround me. Most of them I call my friends, but they aren't really. They aren't my true friends. I don't think I've had any true friends. Only a bunch of surface friends. We share laughs and stuff. There's no one I can talk to if I'm feeling shit. Anyway, I feign smiles and hand out high fives as if I'm on top of the world, but I'm not. All I can think about is meeting up with Connor. Before I even go to my locker, I head to the bathroom where we agreed to meet. I find Connor lurking in the corner on his phone. Before I say anything, I make sure there is nobody else in here. Do you have it? I say. He walks over to me and holds out a small bag of weed. I take out my wallet and hand over some money, and he gives me the bag. I then walk out of the bathroom without saying another word. Lately, the only thing that has been able to make me feel something is drugs. It used to be swimming, but now that isn't enough. Amy, catch, wait, and reset. I'm one of the last ones to make it into the auditorium. It took a while for me to clean myself up. I'm still shaking, and my face is still red and blotchy from the tears. But luckily, I can just blame that on the humid weather. I sit down in the closest seat as the speaker walks on stage. So what is the story you're telling yourself? He says. I look up to find a man standing at the front of the crowd, a microphone in his hand. He is not the kind of person you would expect to be making a speech for students. He seems much more laid back than the tidy, suit-clad person I envisioned. Sun-kissed locks sit entangled on his head and tattoos crawl up his left arm. He wears a t-shirt with the logo Reset Inc. emblazoned on the front. I must admit, I'm intrigued. It doesn't seem that long ago that I was sitting in this very auditorium and had a whole bunch of stuff going on in my head that wasn't helping. I was a stress head at school. No one would have ever expected it because I hit it really well. But my entire time at school was spent wrestling with stress and anxiety, worried about everything from grades and university to girls and how I looked. I was anxious, afraid of not fitting in, and what my friends would think if I did something different. At school, I was a sheep. There was no way anyone at school looked at me and thought I would be the founder of a multinational company. It's really easy to look back now and write those years off as part of my learning curve, but those years were crucial to me starting Instatech.com. That's right, he's Caleb Wallace. I knew he went to this school, but I've never seen him. He sold Instatech for more than $100 million and now runs Reset Incorporated. Wow, he's so young and he just looks like a normal dude. So how does someone go from being an anxious, nerdy sheep to building a revolutionary tech company? The answer is, I did a reset. I changed the story I was telling myself. 
At school, if I felt anxious and had knots in my stomach, I would do whatever I could to get that feeling to go away and calm the farm. I hated that I was always nervous and even started avoiding people and places that might trigger feelings of anxiety. Once I started working, there were some amazing mentors who taught me how to be brave. One of the favorite lines at the first tech company I worked at was, get comfortable with discomfort. As a kid, I treated my anxiety as a disability. It was part of who I was. Anxiety was a part of my identity, like having brown eyes or being tall. The idea of being comfortable with discomfort was a revelation. It made me realize that anxiety was just a feeling, a data point, and not a characteristic of me or something to be afraid of. It is like Caleb is talking directly to me. Everything he's saying sounds like the stories I'm telling myself. I hate feeling nervous, and because of that, I have been avoiding situations that make me feel uncomfortable. My dad is a history professor and taught me about the Romans. He told me a 2,000-year-old quote by a guy called Epictetus. It's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. You can apply this philosophy to anxiety as well. It's not the feeling of anxiety that matters. It's what you do with it that counts. Dad taught me to catch the first signs of feeling anxious and make that a cue to get curious. At the first sign of anxiety, you need to wait. Wait stands for, what am I thinking? Three questions that would help me get my thinking straight are, what am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? And is it helping? The really cool thing about dad's catch and wait method is it would often make me stop and question whether the thoughts I was having were true, real, and helpful. By using catch and wait, I was able to stop going into a stress spiral and avoid those anxiety attacks that haunted my school years. The final piece of the puzzle came from my work with tech companies. With deadlines and multi-million dollar deals, it was really stressful and there's a lot of people who got totally overwhelmed. We had to learn some techniques to get our brains working properly. When your computer is overloaded, you sometimes need to shut everything down and start again. You need to do a reset. In computer speak, we use control, alt, delete. We applied the same techniques to our thinking. It's fine to catch and wait, but what do I do next? The answer was to reset. For me, the physical sign of anxiety was getting knots in my stomach. That little spot under my chest would get really tight and often send me into a bit of a stress spiral. I took dad's advice and the tightness in the bottom of my stomach became a cue to get curious rather than a trigger for anxiety. I would then ask myself, what am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? And is it helping? And if I didn't like the story I was telling myself, I would do a reset. During a reset, you have to ask yourself another three questions. What can I control? What are my alternatives or what should I change? And what can I delete? Or in other words, control, alt, delete. These three questions have an amazing ability to transform the story you're telling yourself. They give you clarity about things that you are stressing about and asking these questions will Connect the smart part of your brain with the emotional part of your brain, where the fear is generated. Caleb went on and talked about the work he is doing with his new company, Reset. 
He works with Olympians, billionaires, and is helping transform charities. He doesn't look it, but Caleb is a pretty impressive dude, and he made me see that I need to change the story I'm telling myself. I'm going to try and use catch, wait, and reset. I'm sick of living with my anxiety. Kara has been gone for nearly a year now. I need to start living the life I want. Changing the stories I'm telling myself seems like a good place to start. Chapter 5. Zach. Who cares about cavemen? The auditorium is hot and stuffy. I'd rather be in the pool right now, punching out some laps. But instead, I have to sit here and listen to some random dude talk about shit that I don't care about. Honestly, he thinks he's so cool and philosophical. When in reality, I think only one or two people in this entire gym are actually listening. The only thing I've found interesting in his entire speech is that he worked with Michael Thorpe. Thorpe won six golds at two Olympics and then spiraled into a drug-induced mess. The try-hard speaker dude apparently worked with him to reset his life and get back on track. But other than that, it's a complete waste of time. I've found that replying to snaps, scrolling through my Instagram feed, and chatting to Kayla over text have been much better use of my time. Now that I'm up to date with all my messages, all I can do is sit and wait until this guy is finished, which turns out to be much harder than I thought. All I can think about is going home, locking my bedroom door, rolling my weed, and lighting up. Once the presentation is finally over, I head off to my next class, Evolutionary Biology. I'm not that interested in the subject, but at least Mrs. Sparks is teaching it. She's a cool, fun teacher who always knows what she is talking about and is always willing to listen and help, unlike many other people in my life. Welcome to evolutionary biology, everyone, Mrs. Sparks says at the front of the room. You may think this is all about cavemen and monkeys, and some of it is. Most of what we talk about in the class is about why we do the things we do. Everything in the human body has an evolutionary reason for it. Humans take hundreds of generations to change in any significant way. Our environment, however, is changing constantly. We have 10,000-year-old hardware that isn't made for the world we live in today. Our biology is perfectly designed to keep us alive in the stress of a jungle. Unfortunately, it's not so great at dealing with the stress of life in the 21st century. Today we are going to talk about motivation, Mrs. Sparks continues. There are three things that motivate humans. Anyone want to take a guess? Sex, drugs, and Instagram likes, blurted Ewan. Maybe not, said Mrs. Sparks, but all of them have a reason why we like them. Humans have three motivators. Avoid pain, find pleasure, conserve energy. Almost everything we are motivated to do is explained By one of these three, Mrs. Sparks explained. Pick something you are motivated to do, and I guarantee that it will fit into one or more of these three motivators. Anyone? Video games, someone yelled. Gotta love Fortnite. Great example, said Sparksy. Video games give you a thrill. They're exciting, and that feels good. Find pleasure. You are sitting on your bum, so that definitely conserves energy. And they avoid pain, because they aren't real. Video games are an example of a thing we called benign masochism. Roller coasters and scary movies are the same. 
So is eating really hot chili or competing in sport. They make you anxious, but you like it. Mrs. Spark said, that's true. I never thought of it like that. You know that feeling of nervousness that you get when you think you might be killed in your video game? Mrs. Sparks asks, your heart beats faster, your breathing changes and you get knots in your stomach. All of those things are a part of your fight, flight or freeze response. They are biological caveman reactions that keep you safe. We like video games because we can feel the symptoms of anxiety, but you know we are safe. That's why it's called benign masochism. Mrs. Sparks wrote the definition on the board. Benign means safe and not going to do you any harm. Masochism means getting enjoyment doing something that's uncomfortable or hurts. The weird thing is we really like the stress and anxiety of video games or scary movies, but we hate it when we feel stress in other parts of our life, said Mrs. Sparks. Why is that? I thought to myself. She was right. I loved the feeling of being nervous before getting on a roller coaster or swimming in a big race. It's exciting. But I hate the knots in my stomach when I'm on my way home and no dad is going to be busting my chops. They both feel the same, but one I like and the other feels awful. Anxiety is evolutionary. We have it for a reason, Mrs. Sparks continues. Imagine two cavemen. One comes out of the cave and looks to his right and sees a beautiful rainbow. He stands there, completely relaxed and appreciating the wonder of nature. The second caveman comes out, sees the rainbow, but still anxiously looks around to make sure he is safe. He sees a tiger to his left and races back into his cave to safety. The anxious caveman is the one who became our ancestor. Because he lived thanks to his anxious response. The happy caveman, who was looking up the rainbow, got eaten. He didn't pass his genes on to us. Anxiety is there to make us pay attention, Mrs. Sparks points out. It's there to show us what's important, and it's there to help us learn. The problem is how we look at these feelings. Take our three motivators. Avoid pain, find pleasure, and conserve energy. How we assess things that make us feel anxious become really important. Psychologists call it framing. How we frame something becomes really important because it tells us whether to improve towards it or to move away from it. If we frame anxiety as being a super bad thing, we are going to try hard to avoid it and not let ourselves go into situations that fire up an anxious response. What if we just treat anxiety like a data point, Sparksy asks. What if knots in your stomach and sweaty palms were both your body's way of making you pay attention? Like our caveman who saw the tiger, anxiety was the thing that kept him alive. It's a data point. The fight or flight response is there to help. We can use anxiety as a cue to get curious. We can actually use the energy it provides to solve our problems. Amy, anxiety is a data point. I didn't think I'd walk out of that gym so inspired, but I did. Caleb really knows what he's talking about. I think his speech is exactly what I needed right now. It made me look at my thoughts, my behavior, and my situation from a whole new perspective. It's refreshing. I never thought of anxiety and depression as simply a data point. I always thought it was something that was a part of me, 
something that would always linger in my gut throughout my life. But now that I know it is just a data point, I can control it and I can utilize it with Caleb's catch, wait, and reset strategy. As I sit in evolutionary biology class, I find myself thinking about how I can employ these strategies into my everyday thinking so that I can get back to living my life, or more accurately, start living it. I decide that from this moment on, I'm going to be present with my thoughts. I'm going to catch the physical symptoms of my anxiety before they lead my thoughts to unhelpful emotions and actions. I'm going to wait and analyze exactly what I'm thinking at that moment. I'm going to stop worrying about things that I can't control. I'm going to decide what I need to alter and how I can change it. And lastly, I'm going to delete the unhelpful thoughts and things in my life. For example, I could have handled this morning much better if I applied these strategies to my thinking. I reckon this is how it would have played out. Catch. I was standing there with my friends as they talked about all the fun adventures they got up to on the holidays. That familiar knot in my stomach returned, and I need to notice it and get curious. Wait. What am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? Is it helping? Obviously not. I was thinking about how I missed out on having fun with my friends, which made me feel left out. I was thinking how Kara missed out on it as well, and how she'll miss out on everything, which made me sad and anxious. I know it's okay to be sad about Kara, but I need to stop feeling guilty if I have fun again. Control. What can I control? Well, I can't control what happened in the past. For instance, what happened to Kara and the fact that she won't be here anymore and how I isolated myself from my friends over the holidays. But I can control my response to my thoughts and feelings. Instead of letting them consume me, I can accept them and realize that I can control them as if they are a data point. And instead of feeling the need to walk away and isolate myself, I can stay and talk about how I'm feeling with my friends and hope that they listen and support me. Alt. What are my alternatives? What can I change? Once again, I can't change the past, but I can change my future. In the future, instead of continuing to isolate myself from my friends, I'll hang out with them even more. I'll say yes to invites and plans, and I'll make the plans myself. In the future, instead of thinking about everything that Kara will miss out on, I'll think about everything she didn't miss out on, all of our memories together. And I'll think about everything I'm lucky enough to do now. Delete. What can I delete from my life that is unhelpful? I can delete my tendency to get anxious about possibly getting anxious, because all this does is send me into a stress spiral that I can't escape. I can delete my unhelpful thought habits, like constantly thinking about everything negative going on in my life. And I can delete my self-blame. Because the truth is, this whole time I've been kind of blaming myself for what happened to Kara. I'm always thinking, is there something I could have done to help her? Could I have done more? But I couldn't. I did as much as I could with the knowledge that I had about her situation. She just wasn't the most open person. I can't change what happened now. I can't change what I did or could have done. And at the end of the day, it was her choice. So I've got to delete this unhelpful self-blame that is always weighing me down.
I was deep in thought when Mrs. Sparks asked me about framing. I must admit I wasn't listening very closely, so much for being more present. But I did hear what she said about how anxiety is hardwired into us from thousands and thousands of years ago. She used the same words as Caleb. Anxiety is a data point. Sparksy is all about the science. In her world, science has an answer for everything. It's freaky that I've had two people in one morning tell me something that I've never thought about before. Anxiety is a data point. Sorry, Mrs. Sparks, I was thinking of something else, I say. I really like the idea of reframing anxiety as a data point and not necessarily as a bad thing you need to avoid. The guest speak out assembly was talking about the same thing. I like the idea that anxiety makes you pay attention. Yes, I heard his talk. He had some great advice and it was all based in evolutionary biology. It's how we are hardwired. We move away from the things we don't like and towards the things that feel good. If we can reframe anxiety from a threat to a challenge, it will help us get curious about different ways to do difficult things. When feelings of anxiety become a cue to get curious, they no longer feel like pain and a trigger for our fight or flight response. When we have curiosity, we can embrace challenges. Chapter 7. Zach. Over and out of it. The first day of grade 12 was exhausting. I'm happy to be home, although the truth is, home isn't much better than school. As I walk past the study, I hear my mother on the other side of the door. She's on a business call, just as she was in the morning. It's about the only time I hear my mum talk. I don't even bother saying hello. I'd be the last thing on her mind right now. When I walk into the kitchen, Dad is on his laptop with a scotch in hand. Oh, hey, Dad, I say. Hey. He says, barely looking up. Where were you? School, I say. I'm not even surprised he didn't know. All right. Look, I have more late meetings tonight, so there's money on the counter for dinner, he says before shutting his computer and walking out the front door in a hurry. I make my way up to my room, close my door, and lock it. I'm not sure which version of Dad annoys me more. The one that is constantly writing me about my swimming times and training? or the one who is so wrapped up in his own work that he doesn't give a shit. It's certainly less stressful when he's not busting my chops. There is a load of schoolwork to do already, and the term has just started. I pull out the bottom drawer and take out one of my last few joints that I've pre-rolled. With the window open, I blow the smoke outside. Schoolwork can wait, I say to myself as I flop down on the bed. Term 2. Amy, when the student is ready. I made it through term one. Honestly, at the start, I didn't think I could do it. I even had days in the middle where I felt like I couldn't even get out of bed. But by using catch, wait, and reset, I was able to turn bad days into good days, or at least slightly better days. This isn't to say that I'm a changed person or that I'm jumping off the walls with happiness and zeal, but I'm definitely handling everything a lot better one step at a time. I think swapping self-blame for acceptance has helped a lot. Every time I find myself distancing myself from my friends and the outside world, wishing Kara was here or feeling guilty for not doing more to help her, I stop and catch myself. I wait and ask questions like, what am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? And is it helping? This really helps me 
to be present with my thoughts and understand how they are a catalyst of my emotions and actions. I then think about what it is about the situation that I can and can't control. And I usually end up at the same overall conclusion, that I can't control the past, but I can control what I do from this moment forward, and if it is a helpful and beneficial response. Next, I think about what I can change or alter. Well, I can change what I can control. So I can change my response to the situation. Instead of sitting cooped up in my room, isolating myself from everybody else and drowning in guilt and grief, I can reach out to my family and friends. I can say yes to my friends' offers to hang out. I can reconnect with them and not feel so lonely anymore. And that's what I've been doing. I've also started getting back into running and joined the cross-country team. Making the change to be more active has helped a lot too. And then I delete my self-blame. This has been the most difficult part, but also the most helpful. Sparksy was talking today about how we need the safety of a tribe to decrease stress. She got me thinking. Kara was a big part of my tribe, and since she died, I've distanced myself from the others as well. I'm not doing that anymore. I feel I've gotten back to some normality. I'm hanging out with my friends a lot more. I'm much more focused in my classes. I'm getting more involved in school activities. I feel a lot better, and for once, I'm actually feeling a little excited for what this final year at school has to offer. Today has been harder than the other days. For no particular reason, I find myself thinking about Kara and how much I miss her. There has been a nagging hollowness in my chest ever since I woke up, and I don't know how to shake it. I guess some days are just like that, and that's all right. I've learned to accept it and try to move on using the strategies Caleb told me, and most of the time they work, but today is different. I've learned to accept that too, that the strategies won't work 100% of the time, and that's okay. At recess, I decide to go visit Kara's tree. When Kara died, Kara's family, my friends, and I asked the school if we could plant a tree on the school grounds in honor of her. It's still quite small, but it's taller than the last time I saw it. The trunk has become sturdier and developed a rougher texture. The leaves are bigger and greener. I can see their dark green veins giving it life, the life Kara did not get to live. I blink back my tears. She's getting bigger, isn't she? A coarse voice says behind me, making me jump. I turn to find a man with a scruffy white beard and cheerful wrinkles hugging his eyes. His work clothes are old and covered in dirt. Sorry if I startled you, he continues. I'm Wally, the gardener. Yes, I've seen you around, I reply. I've been taking care of her, Wally says, gesturing at the tree. It was for your friend, wasn't it? I'm surprised he knows this. Yes, her name was Kara, I say, looking back at the tree. There is a long silence before he says anything else. So, what's brought you down here today? I like to chat to Kara. She still gives me good advice when I come here. If I have something bothering me, talking to Kara helps me sort it out. Do you feel like you need to sort some stuff out? Asked Wally with a fatherly warmth that made me feel like he really cares. Talking out loud can help. I explained to Wally about the last 12 months and my anxiety and how I'm trying to not withdraw even when things feel uncomfortable. 
It sounds like you are trying to get comfortable with discomfort, Wally said. Yes, I am. We had a great speaker come here last term and tell us about being deliberate with the stories we tell ourselves. He taught me some tools on how to deal with my anxiety, I said. Interesting choice of words, my anxiety, he said, putting bunny ears around the my. I have anxiety. I've always had anxiety. Ever since Kara died, it's just gotten worse. Wally looked at me with soft eyes and asked if he could give me some advice. We talked about my plan to change the story I was telling myself. He helped me see that referring to the feelings of being anxious as my anxiety wasn't helping. Anxiety is just your body telling you to pay attention, he said. It is information from inside your body. It is there to help you sort something out. Like being hungry or feeling cold, you wouldn't describe either of them as my hunger or my coldness. If you are serious about changing the stories you're telling yourself, deleting my anxiety from your vocabulary is a good place to start. What other way could you talk about those feelings? He was right. It sounds subtle, but little things like that ingrained beliefs that define us in ways that don't help. You're right, I said to Wally. I've been looking at anxiety as something terrible that I need to get rid of, as something that's become a part of being me. But it's just a feeling. It's just my body telling me to pay attention. It's not who I am. Wally and I kept talking, and I left Kara's tree with a smile on my face and a slightly different view of things. It's weird. Wally has a great way of listening. He understands how you feel and helps you find alternative ways of looking at things. Most adults just tell you what to do or think. Wally seems to nudge you in another direction and lets you discover a variety of solutions and pick one that helps. Chapter 9. Zach. Busted. At this point in time, I don't care about my friends. I'm still swimming, but I don't get as excited as I used to about it. I don't care about doing well in class. I've just had enough. I'm sick of my parents constantly pressuring me. You'll never get into law if you don't work hard. Or, your times need to get better than that if you want to make the national team. My parents are either pushing me, or they're wrapped up in their own lives and ignoring me. We never just have a normal conversation. Honestly, I'm not sure when it changed. Last year was fine. I was doing great in the classroom, amazing in the pool, and I had loads of people I liked hanging out with. Lately, I've found myself spending more time in my room, and I can't get the motivation to do anything that I used to get fired up about. Over the summer, I kicked back, went to lots of parties, smoked a lot of weed. But once the next school year approached, the thought of all that pressure made me sick to my stomach. So whenever I thought about it, I pushed it from my mind and continued doing what I was doing. Partying, smoking, getting wasted. And that's how I've ended up here, I guess. I just haven't stopped. I've lost all motivation to uphold my reputation of being the swimming champion, straight-A student, the most popular guy in school all at once. I feel like I've been wearing masks the whole time, showing people the faces they want to see. I've been pretending for so long that I don't quite know where the real Zach is anymore. I'd rather just keep to myself this year and keep all that pressure off my shoulders. Now I just can't seem to get my motivation back. I can't concentrate. My grades are terrible. My times in the pool aren't as good and I have no energy. My life feels crap.
every part of it feels hollow. Being me sucks and it feels like it's always going to suck. I guess that's what Mrs. Sparks is talking about, motivation hormones. I feel like I don't have any of these hormones at the moment, or maybe I'm just reading them wrong. Anyways, Sparky says that apparently we have tribal hormones that make us feel like we're good enough, proud of ourselves, and that we are contributing to our tribe. One of these hormones is serotonin. Its job is to regulate our mood and happiness. As a result, I guess it is also supposed to make us close to the people who are important to us. I reckon my entire family have missed out on serotonin. We live in the same house, but no one feels like they're connected. As I sit in evolutionary biology class, I'm half listening to Mrs. Sparks, but the other half of me can't stop thinking about meeting Connor after this for the weed. The other motivation hormone is your drive to thrive hormone, dopamine, Sparksy continues. Dopamine gets released when you make progress towards your goal. If you are a hunter in the Serengeti, dopamine would have kept your goal in focus while you tracked the wildebeest. Without dopamine, we don't stick to our objectives. We lose sight of what's important and we get distracted. Dopamine feels good and it gets released when you make progress. It decreases stress hormones and stimulates the reward pathways in your brain to make you Repeat behaviors that feel good. So what happens if your goal is really far away and super stressful, Mrs. Sparks? Do you still get dopamine? Does it still feel good? Someone asks. Great question, said Sparksy. We all have a lot of goals, long-term goals and short-term ones. A long-term goal may be to get good marks at school. Putting in the work, getting questions right and finishing assignments will release dopamine. They will all tell you that you're on the right track. The key is to take notice of your achievements. Don't just finish a piece of work and move on to the next. Take a few seconds to notice your achievement. Savor it. Long-term goals like grade 12 are stressful. Acknowledging that you are making progress will produce more dopamine and decrease your stress hormones, keeping you on track for longer. My coach at Cross Country says we need to thin slice our goals on long distance runs. She says to pick a spot up ahead and use that as a thin sliced goal. When you reach it, you have a little celebration and pick another one a few hundred meters ahead. It really works for running, especially when you want to give up, said Amy. I didn't even know she was in Cross Country. Great example, Amy, Sparksy beamed. That's exactly what you need to do for long-term goals. When we thin-slice our goals, we get more points that produce dopamine and that decrease the stress hormones. Having to learn an entire year of biology for the exam is overwhelming, and when we get too stressed, we quit and get distracted. Without thin-slicing, we usually fall short of our goal because there are no rewards or micro goals in between to give us a hit of dopamine to keep us on track to our main goal. Hence, we lose our motivation. Sparks is on a roll. By using this thin slice method of goal making, we stay on track to our main goal because we are given a hit of dopamine each time we achieve a small goal and acknowledge our progress. I thought dopamine was bad, miss. 
Isn't it the hormone behind addiction, said Sophia? Dopamine is a big factor in addiction, but it doesn't make it bad, Sparks added. Drugs, gambling, phones, sex, and food all stimulate your dopamine pathways. Cocaine is like putting dopamine straight into your brain. That's why people like it and get addicted. The problem is, if you overdo it, you can fry your reward system in the brain, and you need more drugs to have the same effect. It's the law of diminishing returns. Problem gamblers don't get the same excitement and need to up the stakes. You get a dopamine hit when your phone buzzes. That feels good and you get addicted to your phone even though things like social media have been really strongly linked to mental health problems. This is starting to sound a lot like me right now. Nothing motivates me. Nothing brings me joy. Nothing fires up my dopamine. People struggling with depression lose passion and vitality. This is where addiction becomes a problem. Science describes addiction as continuing to do something despite adverse effects. Think about that for a moment. Say you really like something. Sparksy paused to make sure she has our attention. It can be chocolate, drugs, booze, gambling, anything. At the start, you get a feel-good dopamine hit from it, and it feels good. Take alcohol. Lots of people enjoy a drink, and that's okay. The problem happens when drinking too much, too often, has a negative effect on your life. Booze becomes a dominant thought, and getting drunk becomes the short-term goal. That's when it becomes an addiction. The overpowering need to do something even though it has negative consequences. Dopamine isn't bad. We need it. Without dopamine, we have no drive to thrive. The problem is which goals we set our sights on. The long-term ones, like good marks or better health, or the instant gratification ones like chocolate, social media, and video games. Sparksy certainly knows her stuff. I think I may have gotten stuck in a rut of only looking after my instant gratification goals. She has a point. I probably need to change my focus. My thoughts are interrupted by a knock on the door, and a head peeks in. Sorry to interrupt Mrs. Sparks, but could I steal Zach away? Principal Higgins asked. My entire body flushes. Of course, Mrs. Sparks replies. Lovely. Zach? Principal Higgins waves her hand, beckoning me to follow her. Please have a seat, Zach, Principal Higgins says when we reach her office, closing the door behind us. I feel a lump in my throat. I've never been called into the principal's office before, at least not for anything bad anyway. But I can tell by the serious tone of Principal Higgins' voice and the hostile tension in the room that this is not about something good. Zach, Principal Higgins begins taking a seat and locking her eyes on mine. How are you? Fine, I guess, I reply, trying to avoid her intimidating gaze. Fine, she questions. Well, from your poor performance at swimming practice, your lack of focus in classes, and your uncharacteristic quietness and reservation, it's quite clear that is not true. I don't know what to say to that, because seriously, I'm fine. Zach... We have a network of support at this school. We just need you to be honest with us. I am being honest. Oh, so tell me honestly, 
Have you been purchasing drugs on school grounds? My entire stomach drops as if I'm on a roller coaster, but instead of exhilaration gushing through my veins, they pump with dread. No. It's all I can muster up, but it's not convincing. I'm not meeting her eyes. My face is flushed, and my voice quivers nervously. Mr. Fredrickson, the janitor, caught you buying drugs off Connor Smith last week in the change rooms after swimming practice. I try to think of something to respond with, but my mind is blank. There is no excuse that will get me out of this. And Connor confirmed it just 20 minutes ago when I had a little chat with him and escorted him off school premises. Yep, definitely not getting out of this. Buying drugs is a serious offence, but not as serious as dealing them. Therefore, I am giving you a chance and I am not going to expel you. But you will be suspended for a week. Your parents will be notified and you will serve 50 hours of detention. And you are off the team until you have completed all of your hours. Got it? I was fine with most of this. Being suspended and getting a detention isn't great. But at least I'm not expelled. My parents probably won't care because they're so consumed in their own goddamn lives. The only thing I'm really pissed off about is not being able to swim until I finish my hours, which could take all year. Swimming is my future. If I don't swim this entire year, there is no way I'll get into the university I need to get to. But I've got to swim, otherwise I won't get that scholarship. Well, you should have thought about that before you bought drugs on school premises or at all. Look, Zach, I'm being very lenient with you. I could have expelled you if I really wanted to. And if you're caught with drugs again, you're going to be expelled. Is that understood? But I start before I'm cut off. Is that understood? I look down at my hands in embarrassment. Yes, Miss Higgins. So much for the support network. Amy, running on all cylinders. I got home from cross-country training and felt great. My legs are sore, but I set a new 10-kilometre personal best. I was thinking a lot about what Mrs Sparks was saying in class today. Maybe the dopamine from running and putting some effort into my school work is a part of the reason I feel better lately. Using catch, wait and reset has helped a lot. I've reset my goals for schoolwork and have a system that is working beautifully. My head is clear, and when I sit down to study, I'm a machine. Mrs. Sparks talked about some of this stuff in evolutionary biology today. We were talking about hormones that feel good, and what happens with things like depression. Apparently, there are chemicals that our body produces after exercise. Apparently, there are chemicals in our body produced after exercise. One chemical is called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's like brain fertilizer and gets released after exercise and can make you smarter. Another thing that happens with exercise is we release things called endocannabinoids. These chemicals are similar to the feel-good effects of marijuana and tell the body to chill out. Sparksy called it your don't worry, be happy chemical. And she said that's where the runner's high comes from. I have no idea if it's the running or catching up with my friends again but I've certainly got my mojo back and life feels bright again. Chapter 11, Zach. Consequences. Hi, you must be Zach, the gardener says, holding out his hand. When I shake it, it's as callous and rough as sandpaper. I'm Wally. You'll 
be taking detention with me. He makes his way over to the garden, trudging through the soil as I follow him, navigating my way over plants and planks of wood. So, what are we doing today? I ask. Isn't it obvious? He points towards the piles of wood and tools. We're building a fence. He shows me the process and how to safely and properly handle the tools before we actually get to the fence making. So, how did you end up here, in attention with me? Wally asks. It's not really any of your business, I say sharply. No, of course not. Forgive me for being nosy. I'm just a curious person, he says. I guess there's no harm in telling him. Everybody else already knows. Gossip spreads like wildfire in this school. And he's just a harmless old man. I was caught buying drugs on school property, I say, avoiding his eyes. It's actually a weight of my chest being able to tell someone. Ah, yes. I remember Bill telling me something about that, Wally says. Bill? Yes, the janitor. Mr. Fredrickson. Ah, the nosy one, I say, and we both laugh. Bill has a son who ran into trouble with drugs. He doesn't want to see other kids make the same mistakes. It's only a bit of pot, I say dismissively. It's not like I'm shooting heroin into my eyeballs or anything. It just chills me out and quietens the thoughts in my head. Pot is harmless. Buying it at school is probably not the best idea, though. We both have a little chuckle. At least I get some help to build this fence, said Wally with a smile, pausing for a moment. I was doing my master's at university in the late 60s. Summer of love, all the hippie stuff. We had some fun back then. You were a uni student in the 60s? Wow, that would have been insane. You guys knew how to party. I've been listening to The Doors lately. The 60s would have been awesome. Yeah, it was. We had a blast. There was a twinkle in Wally's eyes as he told me stories of war protests and music festivals he went to. They invented festivals back then. It would have been amazing. But the twinkle vanished when he started telling me about his mate, Joe. Apparently Joe loved his pot and was always getting baked. The problem was he got so used to being stoned that he lost his drive to finish his degree and dropped out. He lost his drive to do anything and sunk into a big hole. That's the problem with too much of any of that stuff, or stuff like it, Wally says. It becomes your dominant thought. We started to lay out the frame of the fence. We had great causes back then, Wally continued, stopping the Vietnam War, women's rights, civil rights, all that stuff. Everything we did back then had a purpose and a passion. When those things go together, people are unstoppable. Detention didn't turn out as bad as I thought it'd be. Wally was pretty cool. He's like the Yoda of gardening and is really easy to chat to. He doesn't preach or lecture like so many other people. He listens and tries to understand. And building the fence was a good way to stay active and busy. Overall, it was alright. The only bad thing is that I got all sweaty and dirty. So when I get home, I almost race upstairs to have a shower. That's until I hear mum call my name from the living room. I haven't heard her say my name or even acknowledge my presence for so long that her voice makes me jump. As I walk into the living room, I see mum and dad both sitting on the couch with solemn expressions on their faces. This can't be good. Have a seat, my mum says, gesturing at the armchair across from them. 
I slump into the seat, not looking forward to what's coming next. Principal Higgins called us a few days ago and told us what happened, she continues. A few days ago? So why are you only talking to me about it now? I interject. Hey, I'm speaking. Too busy, were you? Like always? Needed to organize a time you could both fit your own son in for a chat? I say heatedly. Excuse me? Dad pipes in. We're here to chat about your wrongdoing, so don't give us that attitude. We had a plan. University, Olympics, then law. You were blowing it, and I'm not having any son of mine become a junkie loser. You guys had a plan. You never asked me if that's what I wanted. It's my life, and I get to choose what I want to do with it. It's not about you. What were you thinking, Zach? Drugs? Really? Mum says. I shrug. You don't know. This is serious, Zach, my dad says. What's going on with you? If you're going through something, you can talk to us, you know, my mum adds. She looks sad and pretty worried. Talk to you? You don't think I've tried? It's hard to even get a hello or goodbye out of you these days. Maybe if you talked to me rather than barking instructions at me all the time, we might not be in this mess. Hey, don't blame us for your mistakes, my dad says. It was a mistake. I wanted to get baked. Being stoned was the only time my mind would stop torturing me. And you know what? I do blame you a bit. You don't give a crap about me. You didn't even know that something was going on with me until the school caught me with drugs and called you up. And I only started taking drugs in the first place to get rid of all the pressure that you put on me to be your golden boy. Hey, that's enough, my mum yells. You're the child and we are the parents, so you listen to us. Yes, we have been very busy lately, and we are very sorry about that. But that is life. That's how the world works. We work this hard so we can send you to a school, feed you, put a roof over your head, and give you a life of luxury that most people only dream of. You should be grateful, but instead you are blaming us for what you did. You have no idea how the real world works, my dad chimes in. In the real world, There are consequences for your actions. So from this moment forward, you will end this little drug habit and give us all the drugs you still have in your possession. You will also have no Netflix, gaming, or social media privileges until after you have done all your homework. Complete the list of chores we have set for you and do your own swimming practice in our pool. Are you serious? First, you want nothing to do with me, and now you want to take complete control of my life. No. That's not happening, I say standing up, ready to storm out. It's either that or you're finding your own place to live, my mum says. Fine, I say, I'll start packing. I storm upstairs and throw some stuff into a bag. Dad's yelling, but I'm not listening. Coming home after talking to Wally, I was going to make a plan to get year 12 back on track. I was feeling really positive, the best I'd felt for ages. As always, my parents ruin everything. I packed a bag, grabbed my last few joints that I had stashed, and jumped in my car. Tires screech as I speed out of the driveway. I don't need them. I've never needed them. They've only made things worse. Term three, Amy. Carpenters and gardeners. Everything seems to be falling into place. The school year is going well. I've passed all my tests with grades I didn't think I was capable of. I'm involved in almost all of the school activities and even made the rep team for cross-country. I've surprised myself. 
I've also branched out in my social life. I've gone to lots of parties and social gatherings and had a blast. I've been having so much fun with my friends and have actually also made some new friends. I felt more confident and more like myself than ever. Mum has finally started to relax and stop worrying. I sat her down and had the chat about me being an adult now and that I don't need her to organize my entire life. She took it well and we've been getting on better than ever. She was just worried because she had some really dark times as a teenager too. Letting go is hard for her, but she's trying and I love her for it. There have been some dark days, but like I said before, that's normal. I've just learned how to manage them a lot better. Getting comfortable with discomfort has definitely made a difference and anxiety is something I feel now. It's not a part of who I am. There is an acceptance with being comfortable with discomfort. It's knowing that things aren't perfect and that's okay. We can still strive to get better every day. On sad days, I just quietly visit Kara's tree and think about all the good memories we had together rather than thinking about everything she's missing out on. But overall... Everything just seems right, not perfect, but as good as it can get. I use Caleb's strategies almost instinctively now. They've become a habit, a very helpful habit. I talk to Wally pretty regularly these days. He's been a huge help. He spent most of his life as a history professor at university, but now he's the school gardener because he's always loved gardening. Last week, we were talking about why he loves gardening He explained that there are two ways of looking at the world, like a gardener or like a carpenter. A gardener will adapt to their environment and change depending on what the weather and other influences throw at them. There is an acceptance to being a gardener. Some things grow, some don't. There are things you can't control and a gardener accepts that. Carpenters are different. A carpenter has a plan and that plan is rigid. It doesn't change. Carpenters love certainty and will try to hang on to control even when it's gone or no longer helpful. I have slowly shifted my way of approaching life from carpenter to gardener. Instead of thinking about how my life should have gone and how it hasn't turned out like I had always planned, I have just had to let go and see where life takes me. I've had to live in the present and do what is good for me right now. I've had to adapt to the changes in my life and keep growing. Mum can see this, and I think she is shifting to be more of a gardener too. We are all going to have bad times. I really miss my friend, and there is still a car-shaped hole in my heart, but I'm learning to move on. The stories I tell myself are much more helpful now. Getting through the pain of losing a friend is a reminder that sadness is a season and it will pass. Kara's death is now part of my back catalogue of things that I have got through. When I have a difficult time with something in the future, I can look back at the last 12 months and realise that I can get through anything. I am a resilient person. I feel heaps better. I feel good being me. Chapter 13. Zach, choose your story. My senior year has turned to complete shit. Not that it wasn't already shitty. But now I'm at rock bottom. I've failed some classes and only just passed in others. I haven't been in the pool for weeks. I got kicked out of my house. They took my car away. And, and right now I'm on Derek Bradshaw's sofa in his basement, which smells like a wet dog and some sort of old takeout food. I'm not even great 
friends with him, but he said he had a spare couch I could use. So here I am. Before this, it was Danny's couch, and before that, it was Jimmy's couch. It's not the most ideal lifestyle, and certainly not the lifestyle I'm used to. I got a part-time job at KFC, and I try to do the late shift so I can get the leftover chicken. I'm getting sick of eating fried chicken, but it's all I can afford at the moment. And on top of that, my day isn't too flash either. All I do is wake up, sometimes go to school, go to detention, go back to Derek's stinky basement in the afternoon. Everything is boring and draining, and I don't think I can do it anymore. I just feel so lost and numb. I never feel excited for anything. Not that there was much to feel excited for. I'm never happy or sad. I'm just flat. Like I have no purpose. Like I shouldn't exist right now. I just feel as though I want to have a long sleep and not wake up until my life is all sorted out and I'm actually capable of feeling something. Anything other than the fear of never feeling good again or my life never getting better than it is now. I try to repress that fear, swallow it down into the pit of my stomach, and I think all my other emotions have been swallowed down with it. I just don't know what to do with myself. How could my parents do this to me? Like, I knew they didn't care that much about me, but I thought they cared a little more than this. They haven't even checked in with me since they threw me out, just to see how I'm going. And to be honest, a lot of this is their fault to begin with. First of all, their parenting skills are total crap. They're so consumed with their jobs that they hardly even acknowledge me. When they do talk to me, it's always to tell me exactly what their plan is for me and where I'm letting them down. Wally says that there are two styles of parenting, gardeners and carpenters. A gardener will look after the soil, put in some plants and see what grows. They can't control the weather or if a certain plant grows. The gardener cares, but accepts the things they can't control. Others are competent, and they try to measure and control everything. My parents are definitely carpenters and not very good ones. They're only happy if I stick to their plan. Sometimes when I was still at home, I wouldn't see them or speak to them for an entire week. It felt like I didn't exist in their world, and the fact that they didn't even realize that something was going on with me just makes it worse. I guess a part of me wanted to get caught with the dope just so I could steal their attention for a bit, which actually worked, but then they threw me out of the house with nowhere to go and nothing to live on, so probably didn't work out for the best. But now, they don't even give a shit if I've frozen to death sleeping on the streets. I don't think I'll ever forgive them for this. Hey Zach, you ready to finish this fence? I haven't seen Wally since last term and couldn't bring myself to tell him that I'm couch surfing. I have no car and my parents kicked me out. So what's going on in your world? Halfway through year 12. Can you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Wally asks with his usual grin. His expression changes when I finally come clean about the last few months. I'll tell him the whole story. My parents kicking me out, losing my car, the swim team and failing my classes. The whole shit sandwich. We put down our tools and have a seat on some milk crates. Wally looks at me with sad eyes. Well, that is definitely less than ideal, he says, and we both chuckle. But there is an understanding that there is nothing funny about this situation. What's your plan? He asks. 
I shrug and we both sit in silence for a minute. Would you like some advice from an old bloke who has been around the block a few times? I look up at Wally and the smile lines back near his eyes. Yes, please, I say. Well, you need to start today and you need one. A plan that you really want. Two. A plan you know will work. And three. A plan that you know you can do. When you have those three, you can expect results, he says. If we are going to reset your world, we need to rewire your thinking, upgrade your environment, rework your systems and habits, alter your expectations, and start today. He started to draw a triangle in the dirt using one of the leftover pieces of wood. This is the better version of you, he said, pointing at the top of the triangle. We want you up here. If we are going to elevate the best version of you, we need a foundation. He continued drawing two other triangles that represented my environment and my systems and habits. See this gap in the middle, pointing to the empty triangle in the middle? That's your actions. That's what you do. Without action, nothing changes. There was a passion in Wally's voice that got me excited for the first time in a long time. I could feel some hope returning. I asked Wally, how should I start? How do I reset? Firstly, you've got to change the story you are telling yourself, Wally said, pausing for a moment to let it sink in. Why aren't you living at home anymore? Wally asks. My parents kicked me out. They don't give a shit about me. I swallowed hard trying to get rid of the lump in my throat. I told him all about what happened the last term. Wally listened to the entire story. When I finished, he paused and gently grabbed both my shoulders and turned me to face him square on. Bullshit, he said. I'm calling bullshit. That is the story you are telling yourself. Is it true? Yes, I shot back. My parents said that if I wanted to stay under their roof, I had to obey their rules. That's not kicking you out. That's telling you that you need to obey their rules. You chose to not obey the rules, and you chose to leave. No one kicked you out. That is the story you are telling yourself. We sat silently for a moment while Wally's words sunk in. What happens when you tell a story over and over again? Wally asked calmly. You end up rewiring your brain, and that memory becomes part of your identity. The story you are telling yourself is that my parents don't care and that they kicked me out. That's the truth, I said defensively. That may be one truth, but there are always many truths depending on your perspective. What you need to do is find the truth that helps and make that your story. What happens if you continue telling yourself that my parents kicked me out story? I shrug my shoulders and stare at the dirt. You've become a victim. The more you tell yourself that you are hard done by and that the world is against you, the more you rewire your brain to ingrain that victim mentality. What happens in 10 years' time when your boss pushes you to do better and tells you that your work is not up to the standard that she expects of you? Do you quit? Do you become a victim again? Or do you get better and lift your game? Victim mentality will stay with you forever until you rewire the story you are telling yourself. Wally was being forceful, but he was doing it because he cares, and I think I can see his point. For the past few months, I had been blaming everyone else. I have been kicking stones and wondering 
around like the world was against me. I am being a victim. You are right, Well, What do I do now? How do I rewire my thoughts so that I avoid victim mentality? I asked. You need to change the story you are telling yourself. You left home because you didn't want to obey the rules. You left because you believed your parents don't care. Is that true? Is that the only truth? Could it be possible that your parents only want what's best for you and they are driving you hard because they care? I nod reluctantly. After a pause, Wally continued. Is that a story you could tell yourself that would be more helpful? I nod again. A reset is about controlling what you can control and finding alternatives that help. You need to own your part in the situation you are in. Be accountable. That's how you delete the victim mentality. People who don't learn to be accountable can spend their entire life in the spiral of misery that comes along with being a victim. We sat chatting until the sun started to disappear. We talked about habits and how to set up an environment that makes good habits easier. Derek's basement certainly isn't the best environment to do my best work and living on KFC certainly isn't helping. I want to change. I thank Wally with a big hug. There is something about talking to him that makes me feel safe. He helps me find a clear path to improve my shit sandwich of a life. When I got back to Derek's, I wrote down a reset plan. Rewire. I need to change my thought habits like blaming others and being a victim. Environment. I need a proper bed, meals, and study environment. I need a home. Systems. Plan my day with deliberate downtime and study time. Expectations. Make a plan that works and stick to it. Today. Start now. I know what I need to do. Amy. Hey, Caleb. I wake up to the sounds of rain whispering as it hits my roof. The air is crisp and refreshing against my cheeks. I'm consumed by a restful bliss. A rainy day is just what I needed. I decide to walk to school, despite the wet weather. There's something about walking in the rain that makes you feel alive. You feel more connected to yourself and the world around you as the rain kisses your skin. As I walk by the local cafe, the smell of coffee dances in my nose. On a rainy day like this, how can I refuse a steaming cup of coffee? I shake off the droplets that have clung to my raincoat before I enter the cafe. When I walk through the doors, there is a long line, but it doesn't bother me as much as it used to. And as it happens, I recognize the head of sun-kissed locks in front of me. It's Caleb, the tech guru who talked at school in the first term. After ordering my coffee, I decide to talk to him. I considered staying quiet and keeping to myself, but that's not me anymore. I take chances. I'm comfortable with discomfort. I seize opportunities. And I'm seizing this one. After all, how could I ignore the person who has changed my way of thinking and potentially changed my life because of it? I can't resist. I tap on his shoulder. Caleb, I say as he turns around. That's me, he says, with a crooked smile. Sorry, do I know you? No, I say, slightly embarrassed. I'm Amy. I was at one of your presentations earlier this year. Oh, great. Did you like it? I know it's not for everyone, but yeah, I loved it. I was in a really bad place at the time and you really helped me get through it. Well, I'm glad to hear it. The main goal of Reset is to help people and to know that we've helped you means a lot. 
What was it that gave you the breakthrough? I think the main thing was catch, wait, and reset. My best friend passed away last year and I went through a really tough time. I withdrew from my friends, stopped finding joy in my life, and was riddled with guilt and anxiety. Being able to catch the first physical feelings of anxiety has stopped me going into a stress spiral. I use the knots in my stomach as a cue to get curious now and not a trigger to start a panic attack. I said as the brister called our names. Want to have a seat, he said, nodding to two empty stools near the window. He gestures for me to have a seat and smiles with a facial expression that seems somehow familiar. I took a deep breath and explained all about Kara, how I feel guilty and how I dug myself into a big hole. You helped me change the way I viewed my situation and your speech helped me find joy again and allow other people back into my world. I really liked the Control-Alt-Delete part of Reset. How did you come up with that? Yeah, that's one of my favourites too. It's not really mine. Obviously, there is the computer reference. But there was a Roman philosopher called Misonius Rufus who came up with the same thing more than 2,000 years ago. My dad was a history professor and he told me about him. Misonius had three rules for living a good life. One. Waste no time concerning yourself with things you can't change and have no control over. Two, always compare both ways. Look for things you need to improve, certainly, but be grateful for lessons you have already learned. That's the old part. Three, delete the needs for comfort now. Waiting for something that you really want makes the joy of it getting so much stronger when you finally get it. I think the third one is a big problem today. Everyone wants what they want now. We have forgotten the joy that comes with patiently waiting. There was a calm confidence in his voice that made me feel more confident myself. I think the last one is where I got the most benefit. Whenever I used to feel anxious, I wanted it to go away immediately. I hated it. Once I got comfortable with discomfort, I had the time to get curious about the cause of the anxiety. That was my way of resetting. Catching the physical feeling, getting curious with weight, and then doing a reset. That is now just a helpful habit that I use all the time. I'm okay with being uncomfortable for a while. We chatted about lots of different things while we had our coffee, and he mentioned that he loves going back to the school. He has a strong family connection there. I said I hoped to see him around, but that I had to get going. It was great to chat with someone who seems to have been through some similar things as I have. Chapter 15. Zach. Accountability. After that talk with Wally last term, my entire perspective of my situation has reset. I realized that I was victimizing myself when in reality, I was my own worst enemy. I convinced myself that everything was my parents' fault or the school's fault. I didn't even stop to think that maybe I had a role to play in stuffing up my life. I'm not saying that my parents and the way they treated me had nothing to do with it, because sure, it was a contributing factor, but my attitude towards the situation just exacerbated it. And once I took some accountability and changed the story I was telling myself, things slowly started to change for the better. I was the one who didn't talk to anyone about what I was going through. I was the one who turned to drugs. I was the one who got caught. I was the one who didn't talk to my parents about the pressure to be perfect and how it affects me. 
I didn't get kicked out of the house. I chose to leave because I chose the latter option of my parents' ultimatum. And because I chose the latter option, I chose not to have a bed, not to have good meals, and not to have a pool to swim in. Most of it is on me. I just made up excuses the entire time and blamed anybody else I could. But now I know that I am responsible for digging myself into that big hole. I know that I have the ability to get myself out. I have control over my own life. So, after the talk with Wally, I went straight to my parents' house. Believe me, it wasn't easy. I felt embarrassed and still a bit angry at them, but I wanted to do this. Otherwise, I don't know how long I'd be stuck on other people's couches. I have choices, and owning those choices will ensure I never fall into the victim trap again. We talked and they agreed to let me stay as long as I abided by their previous conditions. They both said it was great to see me again. Of course, Dad was a bit of a hard ass as always, but he cares. He just has a strange way of showing it. So moving home means no Netflix, gaming or social media privileges until after I have done all my homework, completed the list of chores that they set for me and do swim practice in our pool, which now sounds like heaven to me. So, before I know it, I'm back to sleeping in my own bed, eating proper meals, getting in some swimming and study, and overall just feeling productive. Very quickly, I began to feel like I had purpose. I no longer wanted to fall into a deep sleep and only wake up when things were better. I realized that we have to work hard to make things better. We're not just going to wake up one day and everything will magically be set right. That's not how life works. So, I've worked hard. I've worked hard at mending my relationships with my parents and friends. I've worked hard at doing my house chores well. I've worked hard in the swimming pool, and I think this is one of the things I needed. I needed to find my love for swimming again. Without all the pressure from school and scholarship opportunities, I had to realize why I started swimming in the first place. It made me happy. The adrenaline and the endorphins that pump through my veins make me feel like I am on top of the world. That's why I started. I don't need drugs to give me that high. All I need is passion and purpose. Swimming is a place where I can be alone with my thoughts. Once the stories I'm telling myself became helpful, I didn't mind being alone with my thoughts. The other day, Wally mentioned the old German philosopher who said that life swings like a pendulum backward and forward between pain and boredom. Feeling overloaded with expectation was the pain part, and getting high and doing nothing was the boredom. I got bored, the weed gave me something to do to feel better straight away. The overwhelming expectations were painful, and like Sparks, he said, we want to avoid pain. The problem was, I got stuck in the boredom end of the pendulum and numbed myself with dope. I wanted to be the type of person who strives to be better, to learn more, to help people, and to hopefully make the world a better place. I need to contribute to the world and not just expect to get everything I want when I want it. Finding pleasure in hard work has been the key. Swimming was like that for years. I just needed to attach a positive emotion to getting other important things done. And I've also worked hard with my studies. It's been good seeing my progress, and it has given me a hit of dopamine that I wasn't expecting. 
Mrs. Sparks mentioned in evolutionary biology that dopamine decreases stress hormones and allows you to keep going when things get tough. It's like noticing that you are leading a race, gives you an extra kick to keep you going even when you're in the hurt locker. I know that I am much too far behind to be hoping for any miraculous marks, but I definitely think I'll pass. I've learned to accept my lack of confidence entering into the exams because I've done all I can do since I changed my routine. And I know that it isn't the end of the world if I don't get the marks I want because there are always alternate routes to take me to the places I want to be in life. So right now, I'll just focus on doing the best I can in my exams and in the pool and everything will work out as it should eventually. Another one of Wally's favorite lines is, do what you can with what you've got where you are. That's what I'm trying to do now. Term four, Amy, finding balance. The end of the year is approaching fast and with it, the end of my life here at school. That means year 12 exams, formal, graduation, and all of the end of year things are just around the corner. I'm quite nervous that everything is ending, but overall, I'm excited. I feel confident and ready for my exams because I have paid attention in class all year, and I have a pretty thorough study schedule all planned out. The old me would have either got completely stressed out about it all and put it off until the last minute, or would have spent the entire term just studying, shutting out everything else going on in my life. Neither of these strategies are helpful. My friends have been amazing. Letting Mia, Harper and Bella back into my world has been such a big help. We have a group chat going every day. The other day at lunch, I thanked them for being there for me and apologized for shutting everyone out after Kara died. Of course, they understood. We had a big group hug. It was a happy moment for all of us. We have the safety of a tribe. As it got closer to exams, we all agreed to have two hours of radio silence. All four of us would turn our phones off and hit the books. At the end of radio silence, we'd get back online and share what we had learned. Turning my phone off gives me FOMO, but when all of us do it together, the FOMO disappears. You can definitely get more work done without the phone buzzing every two minutes. This year, I've realized the importance of balance in my life. I think it's important in everyone's lives. We have to have an even spread of time we dedicate to school life, work life, social life, and alone time. Otherwise, I think we'd all go crazy. Anyway, that's my plan. I'm going to stay on track with my study schedule whilst also hanging out with friends, although I might avoid the parties when it gets closer to exams. Exercising, I run most days now and love it. Going to work and saving some time just for myself. And it might not all go to plan, but I'm okay with that. I've learned to accept that plans don't always work out. I'm treating life like a gardener. I give positive things the best soil to grow in and accept what happens. Wally calls this living life with a striving acceptance. In fact, plans hardly ever work out exactly as you want them, but I can't control that. No matter how hard I try to stick to my plans, there's always something that will veer off course. So it's better not to take plans too seriously and to always be prepared for them to change because otherwise we'd become obsessive and more angered if the plans didn't work out. So I'm just going to go with the flow, try to follow my plans, but also be prepared for change. 
Because if I can't control my plans completely, I can control and change my response to better adapt and deal with it. But to start enacting my plan, I have to start by tidying my desk. It is an absolute mess. It starts tidy and over the school term, it ends up looking like the aftermath of an explosion. Things just keep piling up and I forget to make the time to clean it up. But if I want an effective study space, I guess I'll have to suck it up and start cleaning. As I clear out the drawers, there are a million papers I don't remember using and that I don't know what to do with. And then when I reach the bottom of the drawer, I find a folder with Kara's name written on top of it. When Kara died, I made this folder to keep all the letters, birthday cards, and little knickknacks she gave to me in a safe place. I haven't looked at it since then. But when I see it now, instead of feeling a tightening in my chest and an awful hollowness in my stomach, I get a rushing feeling of calm nostalgia. A feeling that everything is going to be okay. I've actually been thinking about Kara quite a lot as things start to come to a close at school. But I haven't felt guilty or sad she isn't here experiencing all of these end-of-the-year things with me. It kind of feels like she is here in some way, close by, and I get a feeling that she is happy for me. I open up the folder, and seeing the pages of her handwriting makes me smile. One of her letters falls to the floor, and I recognize it immediately. At Euro Camp, one of the activities we had to do was get into a big circle and compliment the person to our right in a letter. I was on her right, so she wrote me this letter. I start to read. In the letter, Kara says, Dear Amy, you are confident, strong, and resilient. You are funny and always up for a laugh. You make me feel comfortable, and you are easy to talk to and be around. You are my best friend, and you are one of a kind. Always be yourself. Love from Kara. Of course, when she wrote this stuff, I never believed her. I thought she was just saying whatever popped into her head to sound nice, because in my mind, I was the complete opposite to all the things she said in the letter, just an awkward girl who doesn't know what to do with herself. Now I see that I am all the things she said I was. I just didn't know how to find that part of me. Using Caleb's strategies this year helped me get there. It helped me open my mind and heart to find the real me hiding behind the anxiety that consumed me. I wipe away a tear from under my eye, smile, and give a nod to Kara, as if she is right beside me. Chapter 17. Zach. Small wins. This is my last official class in school. It feels freaky. I wander in and get a smile from Mrs. Sparks. So this is our last evolutionary biology class before exams, said Sparksy with a slight hint of sadness in her voice. I thought we might use this last class to look at all the things we've learned and talk about how they might help us get through the stress of exams. Not just your biology exam, but all your other ones too. So what have you learned that you have to put in place in your lives, she asked the class. I liked the motivation stuff, the avoid pain, find pleasure, and conserve energy stuff, said Alex from the back row. I'm a massive procrastinator, and when something was hard, I just put it off and found a distraction that felt good. Knowing why I was doing that helped me stop procrastinating. That's great, Alex, said Spoxy. Those three motivators are always there. Procrastinating is definitely a way to avoid pain and feel better in the short term. If something is challenging and uncomfortable and you put it off, you have regulated your emotions. You feel better. The only problem is that it is temporary. 
the hard thing still needs to be done eventually. The people that get comfortable with discomfort and get things done have less pain because they are making progress and the dopamine from that will decrease your stress hormones. Anyone else? I bring up the thrive hormones and stress hormones and Sparksy is pretty impressed. She probably thinks I haven't been paying attention all term, but I have. I've found pretty much everything she's taught us interesting. It has been great learning why we do some of the things we do. This class has taught me that when you are feeling under the pump, the best way to decrease your stress hormones is to make some forward progress. I take notice of my small wins these days. By doing that, I can keep going even when things get tough. Amy, goodbye, Cara. So that's it. We're done. Those 12 plus years of school have officially come to an end. It was a crazy 12 years. Most of them I spent with Cara. As I walked across the stage to receive my graduation certificate, it felt like she was in the audience, cheering me on. Now that the ceremony is done and I have said goodbye to the school, I think it is time that I say goodbye to Cara. I don't mean saying goodbye as in shutting her completely out of my life. I don't think I could ever do that. And if I did, it wouldn't be good for me. I mean just saying a quiet goodbye to the memories we had together here at school, just so I can let go and move on. After chatting with my friends, parents and family, I quietly walk over to Kara's tree, away from the crowd. It has grown a lot since the last time I saw it. It's beginning to look like a proper tree, with a strong trunk and vibrant leaves. This will be the last time I see it, at least for a while. Maybe next time I see it, it will be fully grown, towering over me. As I touch its trunk and leaves, I think of all the memories Kara and I had together. The countless fits of laughter, the many spontaneous adventures, the stupid fights, the many tears, the group study sessions, the movie marathons, everything. It all just comes rushing back. I feel overwhelmed, nostalgic, and peaceful all at the same time, if that's even possible. And I shed a tear. Bye, Kara. I whisper under my breath with a soft smile. Hey, you okay? Someone says behind me. I turn around to find Zach. Before this year, his popularity would have intimidated me. I would have been asking myself, why do I deserve his attention? But now I'm confident and so sure of myself that I don't let such trivial and stupid things like popularity scare me anymore. Yes, I'm fine. I quickly wipe the tear from under my eye. You're thinking about your friend, aren't you? Kara? I'm sorry about that, by the way, he says to my surprise. I didn't think he even knew us. Thanks, I say. We chat for a few minutes. He's so much nicer than I'd imagined. I guess I just never took the time to notice. Or maybe he's just changed. Hey, what are you two up to? I immediately recognize the voice that calls out behind us. Hey, Wally, Zach and I say simultaneously. At first, I'm surprised that Zach knows Wally, but then I remember seeing them working in the garden together a few times. How does it feel to be officially graduated? Wally asks. Great. A little scary, Zach says. Fantastic, I say. Well, I hope you both find your way in life. I see very bright futures for both of you, Wally says, with an expression of wisdom on his face, like he always has. Hey, Dad, ready to go? To my surprise, I recognize that voice as well. I see Caleb walking towards us with a huge, goofy smile on his face. 
Yes, just about, Wally replies. Zach struggles to work out where he knows Caleb from. He finally recalls that Caleb worked with elite swimmers and talked at our assembly in term one. Caleb Wallace is your son, I blurt out, flabbergasted. I had no idea. Wally's my nickname. My real name is William, Bill Wallace, Wally says with his usual cheeky grin. Oh, hey, Amy, Caleb says with a hint of surprise in his voice. I see you know my dad. Suddenly, it all makes sense. Caleb became so wise, not only from his own experiences, but from the influence from his father, Wally. And now that I look at them both side by side, I see the similarities. The crooked smile, the bright blue eyes, the calm and collected expression. I can't believe you two are related, I say, as the surprise settles in. I mean, it makes sense, but I can't believe I never realized it before. So you're the dad who taught him about the ancient Romans and the cues to get curious, I say, pointing at Wally. But he doesn't answer. All he does is smile cheekily. Yep, he taught me how to catch and wait and the importance of being able to get comfortable with discomfort. Mostly, he taught me to be open to learning new things, Caleb says joyfully. Wow. Anyway, I should go. My family are probably waiting for me, I say, beginning to walk off. Well, I'll probably see you at this tree sometime again in the future, Wally says. Yes, you probably will, I say. Bye. Take care, Caleb says. See ya, says Zach with a smile before turning back to Wally. It would have been nice to get to know him. He's not so bad after all. As I walk away, I feel good. I never thought I'd be ready to leave school. I always thought that by graduation, I'd still feel too young to go out into the world. But after this year and everything I've been through, I've grown so much. I've grown into myself and I'm ready. I'm ready to leave this place. I'm ready to enter into the real world. I'm ready to continue to grow and learn and flourish. School has taught me lots of things. But most of all, it's taught me to look for lessons wherever you can find them. Chapter 19. Zach. Back on track. I thought graduation would feel different, more climatic, like I've achieved something huge. And yes, although finishing school is a huge undertaking and something to be proud of, I just think I'm more proud that I'm actually here that I'm actually able to graduate given everything that has gone on with me this year. So for me, today is not a celebration of finishing school, but a celebration of getting back on track. Once the graduation ceremony is finished, I don't know what to do with myself. I speak with my parents and some friends and their families, but I don't share their over-the-top level of excitement. So I go to do the one thing that makes me feel exhilarated and calm at the same time. Swim. I quickly grab my swimming gear from the car and set off for one last time in the school pool. But as I'm walking over, I notice someone standing in the garden. She looks so lonely and sad. I can't help but feel sorry for her. Before I even know what I'm doing, I begin walking towards her. As I get closer, I notice it is Amy. I've never really talked to her before, but I've never held anything against her. As I get even closer, I notice that she's standing by the tree she planted for her friend who died last year. I pause for a second. Should I even go up to her? I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know what to say to someone who is grieving because I've never been through it. 
I guess it's better to see if she's all right rather than just leave her on her own just because I'm not comfortable with it. I have to get comfortable with discomfort. Hey, are you okay? I say, trying not to startle her. She says she's fine, but I see her wipe away a tear. You're thinking about your friend, aren't you, Kara? I'm sorry about that, by the way, I say. I remember them always being together. They were always partners for class project or on the bus for school trips. They were always together during lunch breaks. They were like sisters. I always wanted a friendship like theirs, but I never got one. I think it's because I was never truly myself. I was always pretending to be someone else, so I was never able to meet someone who was good for me, the true me. Maybe someday I will. Thanks, she says. I've always envied you two. You had such a good friendship, and we're always there for each other. It's hard to find that one really good friend. I found myself feeling jealous of you both, I confessed. You, you jealous? Stop it. You have a thousand friends. Maybe on the surface, I concede, but none of them are as close as you and Kara. Hey, what are you two up to? A familiar voice says. I turn around and see Wally making his way over to us. Hey, Wally, Amy and I say at the same time. Wait, how does she know Wally? I only know him because I did detention with him, but I'm sure she hasn't got detention lately. How does it feel to be officially graduated, Wally asks. Great. A little scary, I say. Actually, a lot scary. I'm not sure what I'm doing with my life from this moment forward. But I have a feeling I'll work it out somehow. It's just the thought that I won't that is scaring me. But if I stay on track, at least I'll be heading in the right direction. If at moments in my life I veer off track... At least I'll have everything Sparksy and Wally taught me to get back on track. Well, I hope you both find your way in life. I see very bright futures for both of you. Wally says in the philosophical way he always says things. But, as always, he manages to make me feel a little better. Less scared. Hey Dad, ready to go. A man with long, blonde dreadlocks says, clapping Wally on the back. I feel like I know him from somewhere. His tattoos, his smile, his voice. Yes, just about, Wally replies. Hey, you're the dude that talked at our assembly that one time, aren't you? That worked with Michael Thorpe and a bunch of other Olympians. I say when I recognize who he is. Yes, that was me, Caleb says. What a small world. I never would have picked it, and apparently neither could Amy, as she voices her shock. Her and Caleb appear to know each other, but she didn't know Wally was his dad either. Huh. Maybe I should have listened to Caleb's presentation earlier in the year. If I did, then maybe I would have figured out my problems much sooner. Maybe even before I got detention and met Wally. I'm sure that Caleb got a lot of his wisdom from his dad, and Wally's guidance sure helped me, so I'm sure Caleb could have helped me too. I just wasn't willing to listen. Bye, I hear Amy say, and I am pulled away from my thoughts. See ya, I say as she walks away. Yeah, we should probably head off too, Dad, Caleb says. I'll go get the car ready. Nice to meet you, Zach. Yeah, nice to meet you too, I say before he turns off towards the car park. Well, congratulations, Zach. 
I knew you could make it to graduation. For a little while there, the principal thought you wouldn't, Wally says. Yeah, well, I didn't either for a bit, but you helped me. You set me on the right path, I say. Oh, I think you're giving me a little too much credit, Wally says. I didn't set you on the right path. The path was always there, and you were the one who chose to take it. I only gave you a little nudge. Well, either way, thank you, I say. Wally nods in a way that silently says, you're welcome. So, where are you off to next, Wally says. I thought I might fit in a few laps in the pool before the celebrations later. Good choice. Well, I won't keep you. I'd better go anyway. Good luck for your future, Zach, Wally says, patting my shoulder. I turn towards him and give him a massive hug. He will never know how much his kind and honest words meant to me. Without his tough love, I might never have sorted myself out. Thanks, Wally, I say as he walks away. Who thought the gardener would have such an impact on my life and that detention would be the best part of my senior year? Well, I guess life is full of surprises and I can't wait to see what surprises and lessons are in life's next chapter. Thanks for listening to this audiobook. If you'd like to hear more about a stress reset program for your school, go to lukemathers.com.au. Thanks for listening.